Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. We're here the week of May 30th through June 2nd, 2023. How's it going, Carson? It's going good. Uh, good week. Uh, a short week. Always weird to have that. I was called the Tuesday after a Monday work holiday, a double Monday. Double kinda, Monday. Yeah, I think I've kind of patented that. So we, had, we got through a double Monday, got through a short week. Hopefully everybody had a good one. Hopefully everybody had a safe Memorial Day. Kind of nice to get back in the routine, though, Did I you say. have a case of the Mondays on Tuesday? Yeah, I th- it's a double Mondays. And so that it's always weird to get the Sunday scaries on a Monday. It is. Sunday scaries on a, on a case of the Mondays. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Interesting thing, though, that I wanted to take up at the at the start of this sure, pod. Let's do so it. we were having a discussion in, in passing in the office where we were talking about chicken sandwiches. Very important topic. I, I like to consider myself a bit of a foodie. I think you're a bit of a foodie. I have sampled chicken sandwiches from many chain restaurants, and sure. I've got a neat little list here. Oh, you got of, a list of what I believe is the dispositive uh, top five. Welcome to Char- Carson's Chicken Corner. Ta- yeah, exactly, chicken talk <laughs> with Carson. Which actually, I guess it should probably be beef talk, given that I'm the cow guy. But here we go. Uh, chicken sandwich corner. So okay. at five, Wendy's. Yeah. At uh, four. The Burger King Chick King sandwich. I know. It, Haven't done it, I, but go yeah, ahead. I know. I'll, I'll, well, I'll trust Everybody your after this will. Uh, three, I have Chick-fil-A. Very sauce-dependent sandwich. Two, KFC. Surprisingly yes, good that, chicken that's, sandwich. That's it's a very good chicken well, sandwich. Well, we're talking the new chicken yes, sandwich. Yes, the newest chicken the, sandwich, yes. Since what your number one is exactly. no doubt going to and be. My number, yes, and then uh, my number one is Popeye's, and it's just unequivocal. Uh, I do it's have the an, king. Yeah, it, it, it is the king of chicken sandwiches, both spicy and not spicy. Um, it's a huge piece of chicken. The breading is absolutely unreal. I, I do want to give an honorable mention shout out. Uh, again, we talked about Lincoln viewership to Slim Chickens. I don't know if you've eaten Slim I Chickens. Uh, so there's a Slim Chickens in Lincoln. I used to roll down there on the on the south side every once in a while, and it's a delicious little place. But uh, I, I believe that's the the absolute top five chicken sandwiches. Um, you know, I I guess if anybody wants to disagree, you can try. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the list. Here, I will quibble only with the Burger King Wendy's issue i'm gonna i'm gonna per, uh, your lower tier yeah who would you who would you slide in there though i don't i mean know. those are the hardest spots are you gonna put in a canes i mean you could I, but the only thing good about canes is the sauce and everybody knows it you're you come on hot today no i you're know controversial I, well i what can i say if somebody wants to come for popeyes though um yeah they're wrong let's debate they're no they're <laughs> wrong uh they're absolutely wrong and let's do a little ex parte after the chicken talk are we after done with chi- chicken talk? no i think we're done with chicken talk i think we can absolutely <laughs> jump into uh the cases all right let's do ex parte summary for today so the first case we have is parish versus parish uh, subject matter jurisdiction military retirement all right i have uh state v lorello circumstantial evidence first 48 Slow-mo video manipulation? Question mark. State versus Alkazai? I think that is how that's pronounced. Um, Methods versus techniques. State v. Ramirez. um, Juvenile de facto life sentence. All right. Is that all four? I think that's all four. That's all four of them. Let's get started with the Nebraska Supreme Court. Carson, take it away. So we are kicking off with Parrish versus Parrish. This is an appeal uh, from a denial of a uh, modification of alimony based on 
um, a dismissal uh, for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. And the crux of the issue of this case is that uh, the parishes were um, divorced in 2011. And at that point in time, um, Mr. Parrish had a large military retirement account that was going to be uh, one of the, the primary uh, issues or, or subjects of this divorce. And the concern, and they, and they foresaw that this would be a concern, was that the retirement account was going to be reduced potentially by uh, disability benefits when he actually retired. And so in order to deal with that, the ex-wife was awarded a nominal $1 alimony at the time of divorce, and this essentially contemplated that there might be a modification if the benefits changed uh, from the retirement account based on on um, the husband drawing disability benefits. And eventually this does come to fruition. The husband retires and he gets disability benefits. And all of a sudden this changes the amount that Kathleen um, was receiving. That's the ex-wife. And so she files uh, for modification. At that point in time, the ex-husband, Robert, uh, maintained that the district court was being asked to divide uh, military disability benefits, which is um, preempted and not allowed under federal law. And so here the district court agreed essentially with uh, the ex-husband and said that um, it lacked subject matter jurisdiction because of this preemption issue. And the court believed that it was being asked to deal with military disability benefits, which is um, something that you cannot do in a, in a state uh, divorce court. And so um, here the Supreme Court addresses a couple of things. First, um, they address the fact that uh, retired military pay is divisible, divisible property in a divorce. It's not the same as uh, the disability benefits. And um, they also found that if military benefits are initially divided by a state court, it, even in violation of federal preemption, if the service member fails to file a proper appeal and um, challenge that, then that decision is final and the benefits at issue are divided anyway. So if, if that happens and you fail to uh, raise that as an issue, um, essentially it's disposed of with that final order. Though that really isn't a concern here because um, as the Supreme Court goes on to address in this case, they're not really addressing uh, the actual um, disability benefits. They're just addressing the modification of the retirement benefits. And there is a, a super... I, I was about to say interesting, but I don't even know if I would say interesting, incredibly um, complicated um, and even a bit confusing discussion of subject matter jurisdiction that comes out in this opinion, where the Supreme Court goes through a uh, quite tenuous discussion of how um, lack of subject matter jurisdiction differs from erroneous exercise of subject matter jurisdiction. And one of the quotes that I'll pull out of there is that there is a wide difference between a want of jurisdiction, in which, in which case the court has no power to adjudicate at all, and a mistake in the exercise of undoubted, undoubted jurisdiction, in which the case in which case the action of the trial court, trial court is not void, although it may be subject to a direct attack on appeal. And so I, I guess the, the wrapping around your head of that is that there can be times when um, a court can have jurisdiction um, and mistakenly use this jurisdiction, and then you can attack that uh, judgment as opposed to a time where a court renders a decision and has no subject matter jurisdiction at all. 
And so here the the Supreme Court concludes that the district court had subject matter jurisdiction to adjudicate uh, the issue of the alimony because that $1 piece was in play and decide if they wanted to adjust that. And because of that, they end up sending it back to the district court to deal with um, whether or not this disability offset um, rendered it, you know, to look at the financial positions of the parties and and look if the the alimony needed to uh, be modified and um, if... Uh, Kathleen, the ex-wife, was um, entitled to an offset of the the decrease in pension uh, based on the the relative economic circumstances of the party. So they sent that back down. Um, but again, if you want to go look at that, the the unique language and the discussion there of subject matter jurisdiction, you know, I don't know how often that's going to come out in in a lot of different cases or how, how often that comes into play. But this whole thought of a lack of subject matter jurisdiction versus um, erroneous use of subject matter jurisdiction is something that I will probably be trying to wrap my head around for the next few days. Um, okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what is erroneous use of subject matter jurisdiction if you don't have subject matter jurisdiction? Well, see, and I, I think I think the the context of what they're trying to say here is that. Like here where the the district court dismissed because they're saying they didn't have subject matter jurisdiction. That wasn't accurate. They have subject matter jurisdiction to deal with the divorce. The question is whether or not they have subject matter jurisdiction to deal with something that might be federally preempted. And so they can render a decision on that issue and it can be collaterally attacked whether or not that decision was right. But their actual underlying subject matter jurisdiction existed to deal with the divorce, to deal with the alimony, to deal with the modification. All right. Again, one, we're playing in a world that I, I don't practice in a ton, but yeah. two, I honestly think it's a it's a really um, yeah. narrow area of difference. And they, they end up citing a Michigan case that discussed it. But again, I think it's something that's probably valuable to look at, especially if you have a subject matter jurisdiction issue, because it may affect whether or not you can collaterally attack something. And, and exactly what your attack is. Is it a subject matter jurisdiction attack or is it a, an attack on the actual order itself? I'm, I'm going to have to read the case. That's what it comes down to, right? Yeah, every, I guess yeah. now everybody needs to read Parish versus Parish. All right, what else you got? Anything? No, on to you. All right, I have State v. Lorello, and uh, we got a lengthy criminal opinion here. And I got to say, this, this reads like um, the TV show The First 48. Like it's just really well written how it comes out, and the reason it is is because this this gentleman was um, convicted at a jury trial of first degree murder and use of a deadly weapon to uh, to um, crim- commit a felony. He a real estate agent was found at a, a rental apartment where he was uh, his body was found at a rental apartment where he had previously shown um, the rental place to the defendant. You might have recalled this on the news uh, a few years ago. Um, when this went down in Omaha. So they, um, the issue here is there's a couple issues here as far as how the body was discovered, the circumstantial, because it's a completely circumstantial murder case. So there's all these little, little bits of information, all these little bits of circumstantial evidence that lead up to a jury ultimately convicting the defendant here, Mr. Lorello. And the issues on appeal... Uh, are threefold. So we have number one, a objection was made to a split screen video that was, in his words, manipulated uh, by law enforcement 
but otherwise it was just slowed down to show that the defendant was walking it was somebody that they identified as the defendant walking away from the rental apartment and then also or excuse me walking away from a gas station that was close that was that followed the murder so it, it, the defendant walking from there and then an unidentified somebody they couldn't identify walking close to the rental place the same night so they were showing the the individuals walking the implication uh, I suppose is that it's the same person based on their gait and how they walked the defendant claimed that the uh, law enforcement manipulated the video in order to slow it down so that the left foot and right foot would match so that it would appear and, and lead to the impression in a jury that it was the same individual the objection was made that it was irrelevant and prejudicial and so that was number one. Number two, they said there was an insufficiency of evidence regarding his guilt uh, for a rational trier of fact to find uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And number three, that there was ineffective assistance of counsel because there's trial counsel uh, didn't investigate some juror uh, communication with the victim's family that uh, the defendant alleged here. On uh, the trial court level, the uh, trial court admitted the video but not allow it didn't allow any opinion evidence on the video so that you couldn't say here's the video uh, obviously folks that's the same person or in my opinion that's the same person because they they weren't an expert in you know they called it gate uh, which is the, the walking speed so they didn't have an expert on that so the individual could just say that they um, had the video and they could slow it down and show that it was slowed down so the relevancy objection on appeal was also um, unsuccessful because relevance is a discretionary thing. And it's got good law in, in this case on, you know, relevance is a low bar. We just got to show kind of maybe that it's something, right? That it has some kind of relationship to what's going on here. So relevance is a really low bar. The issue here is the 403 uh, prejudicial outweighed by probative value. They deny that it was uh, 403 here and cite a Pennsylvania Supreme Court case where they had a similar slow motion video. And they said, and in the Pennsylvania case, the, in the video was marked clearly slow motion. So they had that. And it was first shown in real time. And then it was slowed down and showed that it was slowed down to match, uh, you know, or to draw the implication that it matched the defendant. So they adopt that kind of standard, you know, as long as there's some indication on the record in front of the uh, fact finder that, you know, this is slow motion or if it's implicit, like here kind of, that it's slow motion, that it's not going to be an issue and it's not going to be overly prejudicial and the jury or fact finder can make their own conclusions regarding that. Secondly, sufficiency of evidence. They, uh, there's some also good discussion here. It, they don't have to dispru dispute, uh, disprove everything, right? You just have to show that there's some circumstantial evidence leading to the uh, implication that it's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So the standard for appeal on the insufficiency evidence grounds would be the viewing uh, most favorable to the state that a rational trier of fact could not have found beyond a reasonable doubt. Here, they say a rational trier of fact could, with all the circumstantial evidence, uh, everything here put together, um, they could have found his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Now we get to the ineffective assistance of counsel claim about the juror 
con- contact with the victim's families. They say there's uh, insufficient information on the record to review that on a direct appeal, so that'll likely be subject to a post-conviction on someday. But I, I just it's well written it's it's you know you could do a crime podcast on on some of the circumstantial evidence here and the investigation that they did in order to lead to his conviction here for that murder as far as a motive from what i read i don't have anything um he wanted a house i guess i i don't know but that's that's uh, where we're at with uh, state v lorello and ultimately it was all affirmed okay uh next case we come to is uh, state versus Alkazai. I think I already pronounced this differently maybe than I did in the ex parte summary, so my apologies for that. Uh, this is an appeal from a um, bench conviction of driving under the influence causing serious bodily injury, a Class 3A felony. And the crux of this case is um, there is a uh, driving accident where uh, the defendant is driving a pickup, goes through a intersection, collides with another vehicle, the other vehicle rolls onto its side, and a uh, passenger in that vehicle is injured. The defendant waves uh, jury, and uh, the entire case then surrounds around uh, this motion to suppress. And the issue at the motion to suppress is the data master results, which um, anybody who practices DUI law now knows that uh, most counties have uh, gone from uh, testing blood to using uh, these big data master machines that are um, breath-based um, and do um, the analysis of uh, blood alcohol that way. And so um, the, the crux of the issue with the data master results is if the calibration uh, was tested appropriately. And most importantly is if it was tested with gas that con- did not conform uh, to the NHTSA's uh, 2012 conforming products list. And they're saying that there was a gas that was used that was not on um, that list, which um, applies uh, to the Department of Health and Human Services, um, I guess, methods uh, that they they say. And so um, here, uh, it the the primary question comes down to is uh, this deficiency. So was the, the fact that a gas that was not on this list, uh, the fact that that gas was used instead of an approved or conforming product uh, was used. Is that a deficiency in the method of the testing or is it a deficiency in the technique? Because a deficiency in the method would preclude any using of that ev- evidence. A deficiency in the technique does not preclude uh, using the evidence. And so um, the Supreme Court goes through uh, the things that are necessary for um, a inappropriate testing of a DUI and at first is that the testing device was working properly at the time of testing that the person administering the test was qualified and held a valid permit that the test was properly conducted under the method stated by the Department of Health and Human Services and that all other uh, statutes were satisfied and um, again they go on here to define uh, what a method is versus what a technique is and here they found that a method is uh, the name of the principle of analysis and may be a 
laboratory method. A laboratory method is a chemical analysis using laboratory procedures and instrumentation. The failure to perform a test using the prescribed methods makes a test result inadmissible. A technique is defined as a set of written instructions which, which describe the procedure, equipment, and equipment preventative maintenance necessary to obtain an accurate alcohol content test result. And the comparison that the Supreme Court makes here is um, that there was another case that dealt with um, not having the appropriate amount of saline, I believe it was, in um, a blood testing vial when doing um, an alcohol uh, test on blood. And they found that that was um, not a method, that that was a technique, and that that did not render that evidence inadmissible. And similarly here, they found that even though this gas was not on uh, the um, required list, uh, that that was a technique and not a method. And since all of the other methods were followed, that evidence was admissible and the conviction um, should stand. The other interesting piece here is that there was uh, a piece of evidence introduced that um, a, a letter essentially stating that the gas that was used was going to be on the next uh, list of conforming products. And so I don't know if that ended up weighing at all for the district court um, here, but that ended up um, also coming in. And so the Supreme Court found that because this was an error in technique and not in, an error in uh, method, that the conviction should stand. Um, the Supreme Court then also dealt with a couple of um, excessive sentence issues, but the sentence was within the statutory um, range and all of the appropriate factors were considered, and therefore that was also affirmed. State v. Ramirez, a uh, juvenile case and. Uh, well, it started out as a, a involving a juvenile, but it's a 17-year-old individual in 2008 was convicted of eight felonies, including murder, two counts of murder, and was a first-degree murder. Was given uh, life in prison, mandatory life in prison, and then Miller versus Alabama happened, the United States Supreme Court case that said life for juveniles was unconstitutional. So he was brought back to the district court in around 2022 for resentencing. Um, based on that resentencing, he was given a term of years of 128 to 180 years um, when you add them all up, uh, and, and they were given consecutive sentences with 4,972 days credit. So um, what happened here is the appeal involved an allegation that there were erroneous considerations as far as the district court is concerned and that the district court didn't look uh, more towards the individual and what the individual has done and just kind of gave him uh, a, a lot of time <clears throat> for these instances. There were letters from victims and other things. The court ultimately found that all of the sentences were within the statutory range. I almost don't even think it, that they raised an excessive sentence, be, at least directly, because they were all within the statutory range. They just said that they erroneously considered um, some items that um, issue on appeal was ultimately affirmed. So, um, that doesn't really matter as far as the erroneous considerations are concerned. So that uh, was without merit. And then you get to the other one, which is apparently a, a common thing to do with these types of cases where you call it a, a de facto life sentence and say that the life sentence that you're giving this person is similar to the life sentence that the United States Supreme court said was unconstitutional and it violates the eighth amendment. And it's not life without parole, but a term of years. That's what the district court says. So you kind of, you forget that 
you know, nobody's going to live to 180 years, right? So you forget that part and you just say, well, it's a term of years. So that's within the statute and that's within the, the range that we can do. And they look at some other law and then they get to that. And then they say, uh, because it's a not life without parole, it's a term of years that doesn't violate Miller v. Alabama. And so we can do that and it's affirmed. Now, I, I want to bring up something that, you know, we're almost, we're six months into this thing. The, even when I was in uh, a law clerk uh, and I did appeals, the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals called it a PSR. Everybody else calls it a PSI. The court goes out of their way to also call it a PSR. And I'm not sure whether we should all change <laughs> to conform to that. Should we conform? Uh, should we conform or should do we just, you know, stick our head in the sand and say it's a PSI and that's what we're going to call it forever? I don't know. I don't know either. All right. It's a fun thing. It's it, in the eyes of the beholder, whatever so you want to call you it. You can either uh, you know text us or tweet us or email us about chicken or uh, PSR versus PSI. Right? The important things. The important things. So this is the end of the Nebraska Supreme Court cases for today. That was a lot. That was a lot. And right. some heavy opinions in there. Heavy opinions. Let's get to the Court of Appeals. Carson. All right. So jumping straight to the Court of Appeals, we start out with a published opinion, Watson versus Pick. Uh, This is an appeal um, from the District Court of Washington County, and the discussion here is um, restrictive covenants and uh, Pick's use of his property, and the primary issue here is that Pick is uh, alleged to have used the the property that he owned in this subdivision for a used car lot of sorts where it appeared that he was fixing on different things, uh, having junk junk cars there, maybe chopping some of them up for scrap metal and things of that nature. And eventually all the people in this subdivision get fed up with it uh, beginning in 2010-ish, 2011, 2012, and then 10 years later-ish, they finally decide, okay, we're done with this. Uh, they band together and they file this suit. And so the uh, district court found that he was in violation of the covenants and they permanently enjoined him from uh, maintaining this junkyard on his property. He could store some vehicles there um, and then could have a few personal vehicles outside of a garage that was on his property. But beyond that, he couldn't have anything more. And what I would say the the value in the discussion here is in relation to a couple of things. One, uh, waiver and acquiescence, uh, the theory that the parties here that were trying to enforce these restrictive covenants had waived or acquiesced to Pick's use of his property because it had taken them so long to enforce this restrictive covenant. And the Court of Appeals essentially deals with this and uh, whether or not their uh, lack of trying to enforce the restrictive covenants earlier waived that. And they find that they didn't. They found that, you know, oftentimes they had been reporting Pick. They had reported him to the uh, the county. They had tried to do other method methods. And eventually they finally got fed up enough that they file suit and go uh, after Pick to enforce this. And so they did find that they had waived or had not waived or acquiesced to his use of that property. But again, good discussion there. The other good discussion is on ambiguity and whether or not the uh, restrictive covenants were too ambiguous to be enforced. Here they were using terms like noxious and offensive or annoyance or nuisance and those terms of art and how you can use those in order to, uh, I guess, to determine what is offensive or noxious or annoying or a nuisance. And here they found that 
it was not ambiguous to use it in this way. And, you know, the, the uh, protective covenants here um, were drafted in a way that uh, it was known the way that the property was allowed to be used and that Pick was violating that. But again, if you're dealing with restrictive covenants, a, another good case to discuss that. And then finally, the the permanent injunction that was issued and whether or not that was enforceable um, and whether or not it was appropriate. I think the discussion there is also helpful as to uh, scope of those permanent injunctions and the way that they can uh, work with those restrictive covenants in order to enforce the provisions that exist against that land. So some good discussion there, especially if you have anything that deals with restrictive covenants or trying to enforce or, or write those. State v. Long is a criminal appeal out of Lancaster County. Uh, Mr. Long was convicted of second-degree assault, use of a firearm, possession of a firearm by a prohibited person, and there was um, text messages involved, uh, and that's kind of what the subject of one of the assignments of error. Uh, another one was uh, insufficiency of evidence and ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, Mr. Long was sentenced to 10 to 20 uh, on each count of second-degree assault and uh, 5 to 15 on use of a firearm and 3 to 15 on possession uh, by a prohibited person. There was, uh, in the case here, there's a one month gap between the shooting uh, that went down and then the report. Um, the, the individual here, I believe uh, her name is Champagne. Um, she was shot in the th thigh and it went clear through and they put peroxide on it and bandaged it and just left it alone. And they were, um, they didn't want to report it. They didn't want to do anything like that. They didn't want to go to the hospital because anytime there's a, a gunshot, then that, the law enforcement is going to be called and asked, you know, what happened. So they didn't, uh, they treated it themselves. And then a month later, uh, she reported that to law enforcement. There were some texts involving Mr. Long uh, and then another individual that who wasn't identified in the text. It was an unidentified, untraceable kind of number. And there were these text messages that Long was involved in this conversation in this text message thread. And he alleges on appeal here that those should not have been admitted and that the didn't have sufficient identification or authentication or foundation in order to, um, you know, be received into evidence. Now, similar to relevance that we talked about earlier, the court says here authentication and identification is a low hurdle. Uh, we just need to make sure that the they're, uh, you know, not who authored the text messages. That's not the important part. A, that would go to their weight is who authored it. Are they what they purport to be? Um, are they text messages? Is there some kind of reliability in the fact that these are text messages? And Mr. Long himself, the defendant here, said that that's you know those are those are text messages, but um, didn't identify who they were from or anything like that. And so they there's some good discussion there about how to get text messages and standards for text messages and, and admissibility in criminal matters. They. Defendant here urges the adoption of, there's apparently a Nevada case called Rodriguez that maybe makes a little heightened standard of what you need to prove in order to lay foundation um, for text messages. The court here, at least in this Court of Appeals' unpublished memorandum web opinion, um, did not choose to uh, adopt that Rodriguez case. So that is 
um, declined. And so the text messages, the receipt of the text messages was affirmed. The evidence here was sufficient. Um, they go through that. So there was no, that was without merit. And the ineffective assistance of counsel claim, there was no record to identify um, how the uh, trial counsel was ineffective. So that was also not dealt with. Okay, next case we come to is uh, State v. Uh, McSwain. And I guess we're sticking on the theme here of text messages. So this is an appeal, a post-conviction relief appeal from a conviction of terroristic threats, kidnapping, first-degree sexual assault, and use of a deadly weapon to commit a felony. And the crux of the issue here is that the uh, trial counsel was ineffective for failing to call witnesses to uh, support McSwain's argument that uh, some text messages he sent were not related to the events at hand, but were, were related to events that happened earlier in the day at another location. Uh, the crux of the text messages was that he was apologizing to individuals, saying that he'd you know, made mistakes, done things he wished he didn't done, he'd messed everything up, etc. Um, and so the, the prosecution had used that to demonstrate that he had a guilty conscience and guilty mind based on the events for which he was convicted. He says that they were based on events that had happened earlier and that there were individuals who would cooperate that. The interesting piece here and the thing that I will uh, pull out I guess, is that trial counsel in a deposition in this case actually said uh, that he felt that he was deficient and that there was no excuse or no uh, reasonable trial strategy for not uh, calling the individuals to testify and that that was wrong of of him to do and that, you know, based on being an experienced trial counsel. And here they had, uh, said that the, the trial counsel had tried over, I believe, 47 jury trials, uh, so was very experienced. And trial counsel here felt that uh, his actions were not a reasonable strategic decision and that that should not have happened. Uh, anyway, regardless of that, the district court still found that it was not ineffective um, assistance based on on the uh, trial counsel's failure to do this the court of appeals disagrees with that and and say that's you know that's fine we'll find um, that there was um, an issue here with with trial counsel but that they still have to deal with the prejudice piece and so even though they have um, the trial counsel may have been deficient they still found that even based on that there was not enough evidence to show that this was prejudicial and that there was a reasonable probability that but for trial counsel um failing to call these witnesses or trial counsel's alleged deficient performance that the trial would have went any differently. And so therefore they still affirmed. I need to unmute myself. Otherwise. Yeah, this doesn't do any good. (laughs) I mean, unless you just want to talk to me. Yeah. Uh, State v. Shaquia P. Uh, It is a a juvenile termination of parental rights. There were over five. This is going to be quick. There were over five years of court involvement uh, with, um, this mother there were failed trial reunifications there were three petitions to terminate and finally uh in this case after a hearing on the petition to terminate i mean it was a little questionable there was um information that she was good on visits and there were other things and that she was participating in some therapy but in the alt and in the end the court here found that uh, the best interests of the children revolved around permanency and terminated her parental rights. Uh, they found the 15 out of 22 and then said the best interest uh, supported termination and on appeal that was affirmed. Okay, next case we come to is State v. Price. This is another uh, post-conviction uh, relief appeal um, from um, the Lancaster County District Court without holding an evidentiary 
uh, hearing. And here there's a, a ton of issues on appeal uh, that he's arguing. Um, and the, they're all based around ineffective assistance of counsel. And I won't go through uh, the various um, things and various factors that he's arguing um, to the extent that any of them um, were actually found to be deficient with counsel, which uh, basically none of them are. Uh, they're also found to not be uh, prejudicial, and uh, the Court of Appeals found that there was no issue in not uh, having a uh, post or having an evidentiary hearing uh, because uh, Price had uh, failed uh, to appropriately plead the things that he was also um, arguing uh, for post conviction. So this is a long opinion, uh, quite a few facts. Um, but not a ton of uh, law to be gleaned here. Okay, I had State v. Davalos Romo, um, and this is a criminal appeal uh, regarding a plea-based conviction for attempted first-degree sexual assault. 10 to 20 years uh, was what they were given on that count, and there were two counts of uh, child abuse, and there were two to three years on those counts, and they were all consecutive. Uh, claims on appeal that it was not voluntary, that it was excessive, and that there was ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, I won't get into the facts here, but it was um, that ultimately the district court and the court of appeals found that the plea-based conviction was voluntary. The sentence was within the statutory range, so it wasn't effective, or excuse me, so it wasn't excessive. And the ineffective assistance of counsel claim was based on one of the child abuse charges being outside of the statute of limitations. And they basically said, well, you got a better deal um, through this plea agreement than you would have if you would have gotten rid of that and done something else. So um, that's that's what they said. So it wasn't ineffective at all. You actually got a better deal. So they ultimately affirmed. Okay. Uh, final case that I have is Malone versus McCullough Construction. I'll be honest, this is kind of one of those cases where they hide a gem for you a little bit at the end. Um, and this is an appeal uh, from the Gage County District Court granting summary judgment to uh, Miller Builders um, on the basis of a uh, workplace injury to an individual who was hired by a subcontractor. And so the crux of the issue here is that uh, Miller Builders is a construction company who uh, design construction projects and then uh, hire subcontractors to complete um, work. And here McCullough was the hired subcontractor and McCullough provided the certificate of insurance showing uh, to Miller that McCullough had uh, workers' compensation insurance. Uh, McCullough then goes on to enter into an oral agreement with Andel Building Corporation, um, who uh, was going to assist with completing the framing work. And that is where the injury and the issue happens here. Um, and so Andel Building is the one who had uh, a couple of employees, including um, and Mr. Malone, who is uh, the party here uh, who is wanting the workers' compensation protection. And so the couple of areas of analysis uh, that are relevant is, um, first of all, the, um, the coverage of whether or not Miller uh, was responsible uh, for this employee and his injury. And here the, the Court of Appeals gives us a great discussion of um, the uh, theories of liability as to uh, whether or not this individual was an, who he was an employee of and so who was uh, responsible for the workers' compensation, and then also um, the employer theory of liability uh, relating to that. And then finally, they go into the negligence and whether or not um, 
Miller Builders had a non-delegable uh, duty to provide a safe work environment to Malone based on being the uh, general uh, contractor here. And the, the Court of Appeals finds um, essentially that there is uh, no legal duty here, uh, that, that Miller had not hired uh, this individual. And um, so then it because of the fact that Miller had taken care of making sure that uh, McCullough Construction had uh, the appropriate proof uh, that their employees were covered by workers' compensation. They were not trying to circumvent uh, any of the Nebraska Nebraska statutes uh, re- regarding employees and um, negligence. And so, again, uh, just a couple of, of nice pieces of law here. If you have uh, any general contractors dealing with uh, subcontractors and how to appropriately protect yourself and take care of those things um, and make sure that you're not on the hook if someone – um, who is a subcontractor happens to get hurt on one of these uh, job sites. So again, one of these practical cases where I think you could use it in uh, everyday advising of clients and uh, is tucked away there at the end of the Court of Appeals. Well, there we go. I think that's it for another week. Is that right? I think hey, that's it. I got a question for you. Yes, sir. Are you Jimmy Ray? Am I? <laughs> am I Jimmy? Am I Stingray? Are you Stingray? I don't know. Are you Chicken Ray? <laughs> I you? might be Chicken Ray. Oh, man. This is a beautiful summer song. It's it's getting right into summer. We had some liquid sunshine here today. and uh, Never going to complain there. about that. Never going to complain about liquid sunshine for our farmers and out here where we need it. Um, let's see. Go back to episode one uh, for our disclaimer. This is uh, Point Two Law Review brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Got offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. Uh, Chicken Talk was brought to you by Carson Messersmith alone. Wow. Distancing yourself from (laughs) from me and my chicken takes. Okay. (laughs) Some hot takes. Wow. No, I agree with uh, three out of the five. All right. Well, uh, that's it for this week. Everybody have a great week. Sorry this was a long one. We had a lot to go through. Yeah, there were quite a few cases after last week. They really hammered on on what we needed to do. So uh, have a great weekend. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith.